Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Andy Rowe Show. Former US Navy SEAL Mike Ritland was involved in the mission that kick-started the war in Iraq. You're going to hear the full play-by-play details of the assault, including other missions that he was involved with during the 2003 invasion. You're also going to get his thoughts on the SAS and the SBS. And after leaving the SEALs, Mike specialised in training working military dogs for the Special Forces. And he's going to give you his top tips on what he looks for in a top dog. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Before we start, a massive thank you to our sponsor this week, Sons, who helped make this show happen. One in four people suffer from gut health issues. Gut health is vital to your general wellness, with 70% of your immune system located there. It's also linked to mental health, improved sports performance, and general well-being. So if you have gut health issues or just looking to optimize your gut health, Sons have the solution. Sun's live bacteria supplement is clinically proven to treat digestive troubles and improve your gut health. It's backed up by over 50 clinical trials. I've been using it and I can't speak highly enough of the difference it's made. Check it out at suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY25 to get 25 quid off your first order. Your gut will thank you and you'll also be supporting the podcast and the work we do, which is always much appreciated. Mike Ritland, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here, so I appreciate it. It's an honor to have you on. I mean, I read your book. What a crazy story, and we'll, we'll get into that. Um, we'll get into sort of your journey through the Navy SEALs and then also working with some um, pretty impressive animals. Born in the 70s in, in Iowa, your, your upbringing, um, I talked to a lot of SBS and SAS guys over here, they always sort of, the guys that have gone into special forces are always like hard as fuck and they kind of have grown up through hard times. You know that saying, uh, hard times make hard men kind of thing. But you you had kind of a different road, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't categorize my childhood as uh, as hard. I mean, you know, to me, really anybody in in this country with very few exceptions have truly difficult childhoods when, when you compare it to the way, say, children in Afghani villages, you know, right now are growing up and scheme of things. You know, my childhood was was pretty positive and, you know, there wasn't a bunch of crazy things that happened of, of you know, getting abused or, you know, growing up on the street or anything like that, you know, yeah. so. A lot of my audience is, is familiar with the SBS and SAS selection over here. I'm guessing you've probably got a pretty good idea of that as well. Can you give us an idea of how much or how different, um, what are the main sort of differences between Navy SEAL selection? Yeah, I mean, uh, Navy SEAL selection is for sure way harder than everybody else. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll save that one for TikTok. 
Yeah, they're, uh, they're all tough um, in a different way. Uh, the one thing I will say, I don't know how long SPS and SAS selection uh, courses are, but to my knowledge, the, you know, BUDS, the SEAL selection training course is, uh, is the longest. I mean, it's a little over six months long and it's just, you know, it's a long time to be in that sustained getting kicked in the nuts environment. You know, the, the one common denominator with, with all special operations guys is, is right up here. Um, you know, there, there are guys that are phenomenal athletes. There's guys that you're like, how the fuck did you make it through? You know, f- physically you look at them and they're built like a thumb, you know, you're just like, how is this dude good enough to make it through? And, and that's, the, you know, the reality of it is there, there's a, an uncommon element of mental toughness in, in special operations guys. I think uh, when you compare them to your average, average citizen that exists, that there's just, there's an extra layer of, of, not quitting or, or not giving up that, uh, you know, that exists in, in all of those guys. But what do Navy SEALs think of the SAS and SBS? Nothing but super, super high praise for all of them. Um, you know, within the United States military, there's a healthy rivalry, I think, uh, between special operations that, you know, in peacetime or in training, there's a lot of shit talking and a lot of, uh, you know, almost bitter rivalry where, where, you know, they, they kind of take it personal, but when bullets are flying and you're overseas, then, you know, those guys are, are just as good as your own teammates in terms of, of how you value and respect them. And, and it's absolutely that way with, uh, you know, with the Brit SPS, SAS guys, you know, nothing but very, very high praise for those guys, but really across the board, you know, tough guys, smart guys, capable uh, you know, very good operators, um, you know, and, and just a lot of, a lot of professional respect for, uh, for those units, uh, without question. You talk about BUDS. BUDS is like the actual training process for a Navy SEAL, right? I've heard a lot about Hell Week. Is it the hardest part of SEAL training? Uh, I think it depends on the person. For me, I would say it was not, and not to say that it was easy. I, I was expecting Hell Week to be the hardest part. And I think there, there are other parts of BUDS that, um, that are equally as difficult. And from my experience, the, the last phase of training being out at San Clemente Island was actually the hardest, but hell week, uh, in particular, uh, you know, I'd say is, is probably the most famous part of, uh, of seal training. You know, it starts on Sunday, late afternoon, early evening, uh, and goes until Friday about the same time, you know, late afternoon, early evening. And, uh, you know, so you, you, you get up early Sunday morning to get all your shit ready. So from Sunday morning until Friday night, basically, you only get at the very most four hours of sleep for that entire period. Uh, and, and in our case, we got about two and a half. You know, if, if you're a really squared away class and you're doing well, then you may get that full four hours. But, you know, it doesn't really matter. I mean, two and a half or four spaced out over a six day period, uh, you know, is just woefully in, insufficient to begin with. So there, there's, there's really no, no two ways about it. Even as an instructor, I remember, uh, you know, the, the first hell week that I worked uh, years after I'd been through as a student, I, I remember the, the very first thought I had was, fuck me, I don't know if I could do this again, you know, as a student. Um, I mean, I, I was destroyed as an instructor. And now putting pressure on people is just trying to survive pressure is also you know different as well and that's why it takes so much out of the instructors you know just non-stop incessant balls to the wall you know pressuring this this group of guys non-stop and so even though it's an eight-hour shift 
it's still really exhausting. But at the end of Hell Week, the instructors are, are damn near as, as tired and, and spent as, as the students are. But the name of the game with that, again, is mental toughness, is that they're just trying to put you in a position where no matter how good a shape you're in, no matter how gifted of an athlete or, or uh, you know, physical prowess you may have, is that it doesn't matter, is that you, you have to, to, in your mind, decide that you're going to keep going. You know? and, and that's the one thing they're looking for, really, is, is you know, with, with as much pressure as they can put on you in a peacetime environment, uh, and as tired and as cold and as miserable as they can make you, can you still stay calm? Can you still keep going no matter how bad it gets? And, and then ultimately, can you make decisions and, and show some level of leadership so that, uh, you know, if things do get that bad, you know, you'll, you'll come out on the other side. And, and it's really, it's just to, to eliminate all of the people that don't have that because those people are going to be liabilities uh, in the job. In terms of kind of what you do, I mean, it's, it's just a nonstop, you know, mostly physical activities and a lot of mind games. You know, there's a lot of making you think that something's going to happen and then they do something else that's even worse, you know, so they'll, they'll make you think you're going to be able to get out of the water and go stand in front of uh, or, or huddle around the vehicles that are, that are warm, uh, you know, and then just as you're getting there, it's not this guy fucked up and, and he didn't do it right. So all of you back in the water. You know, it, it's stuff like that, that just, they constantly kind of kick your legs out from under you mentally over and over and over and over. And, and the consequence is always just absolute miserable conditions, you know, where, where it just makes you think, Jesus Christ, what, like, why am I here? You know, and, and there's really nothing like the cold being cold and wet will take the piss and vinegar out of everybody. I don't care how tough somebody is, you know, if you're, if you're tired, and you're, and you're soaking wet and freezing your ass off just over and over. I mean, to the point where you're bordering on hypothermia, like that makes everybody a pussy. I don't, I don't care who you are. You know? uh, it just does. And, and when you do that for six days straight, you know, and there's sand in, in every crevice, uh, you know, in between your shirt and, and your skin, uh, you know, layers of sand and salt water, and you're moving and chafing, you know, under your arms, in between your legs, you know, your nipples are raw. Uh, you know, and, and then it's back in and out of the water, back and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know, boats over your heads, push-ups, buddy carries, berm sprints, and it's all in boots and sand. And I mean, it's just, you know, again, they, they do everything they can to try to break you, um, you know, and the people that, that come out on the other side, they know that now in the job, once they're at, at the SEAL teams, that if, uh, if going gets tough and they have to depend on that guy to, to pull, pull through in the, in the most austere and, and shitty environment you can imagine uh, that, that they're going to be able to depend on that guy to, to still be there you had a really tough day one day and um decided it was a good idea to go and grab yourself a hot chocolate didn't you yeah so this was uh this was at the end of training we were out at san Clemente island and we had done a, a long night excursion and again it's you know february uh we had finished up it was like you know two in the morning we were cleaning our weapons and getting all of our squared away and myself and two other guys kind of bolted out quick uh, to the cafeteria next door and just got a hot chocolate because we were freezing and wanted to you know sip something warm while we were cleaning our weapons and uh while we were in there this warrant officer kicks the door open and it's like what the fuck you know get out of here you know starts yelling at us and busts us doing it so we, we scurry back into the weapons cleaning room and then about three minutes later the entire instructor staff comes, you know, barreling in and singles us out, you know, 
you know, Ritland and these two other guys decide that fuck all of you, you guys aren't important. The gear's not important. Them being nice and warm and fucking cozy is more important, you know, and then just totally fucking, you know, make us look like total shitbirds, which we were. I mean, you know, but the bottom line is, is you can't prioritize yourself over your team and your gear and, and all that stuff. And so uh, it, it was well-deserved, but they hammered the shit out of us uh, for the rest of the night. And they broke all of our weapons down as far down as you can break them down without having to use specific weapons tools to, to break them down even further and put it, put each gun in a, a five gallon bucket filled with half, half sand, half seawater. Uh, and, and put all of the parts in those buckets. And, and while they were beating the shit out of us out on the, uh, out on the beach. So about four, four thirty in the morning, they, you know, they're done kicking our ass. They hand us each the bucket and say, you know, okay, at, at six 30 tomorrow morning, uh, you know, we're going to have a full weapons inspection and your shit better be, uh, you know, whistling clean. And so, you know, we're dumping shit out and it's in the dark and we're sifting through, you know, sand and, and salt water and we're exhausted and freezing and, you know, trying to trying to unfuck our weapons and, and get them cleaned up and put back together and, and uh, managed to pull it off somehow. But uh, but that was a, a pretty pretty significant lesson learned of, of me not putting myself uh, ahead of anybody else. <laughs> what a lesson to learn, Jesus! It's yeah, grim. No. How long until so you, you got you got through seal training? How long until you you were into action? Can you can you remember your your first mission? Yeah. So, I mean, it was several years, you know, I went through training, uh, started in 97, graduated in 98, went to jump school at Fort Benning and then went to, uh, at the time it was called STT SEAL tactical training, which is another, uh, uh you know, six months of, of advanced training, kind of bridging the gap between buds and, and being at a SEAL team so that you're, uh, you know, a, a little more capable when you show up and not so far behind that you're dragging dragging the platoons down or, or not as much because i mean any new guy showing up even with the advanced training you're still you don't know jack shit compared to the guys that are there and, and so after that then you go to the seal team and you spend six months on probation where you're just uh getting ready for what's called the the, the trident board or the chief's board basically it's it's a, a verbal or oral exam that's how it was for me it's it's different now but you basically go in this room and there's you know, 20 very senior SEALs standing in there. They're all chief C7s and above. And they can ask you anything. They can ask you, you know, what the cyclical rate is of, of an M4 or, or, you know, what the maximum effective range is of, of this bullet from this gun. They can ask you, you know, parachuting questions, how to fix a flooded, you know, outboard 55 horsepower motor, uh, you know, for the small boats, uh, diving questions. I mean, basically any aspect of the job land navigation shooting explosives diving parachuting you know you name it and they can ask anything can you get any of them wrong i didn't no are you allowed to um it's kind of a case-by-case basis i mean not not really i mean if if you get any of the questions wrong you're you're going to come back and do it again yeah uh, if they give you that chance Right. Knowing all of that stuff is kind of a given is, is that, you know, that that's a, a bare minimum thing. What they're really looking for, and this is kind of the last and final test that they're doing is, is that they're fucking with you. You know, the, the way that they ask you the questions, they'll ask you morality questions like, Hey, if we're out in town and this happens and then we do this, that, and this, you know, what do you, what would you do? You know, stuff like that. Uh, or in combat, you know, if this happened, how would you, how would you respond? Or, you know, this firefight takes place and, 
and these different things are going on, you know, OIC gets shot in the head. Now you're in charge. What are you going to do to get us out of that? You know, stuff like that. And so, you know, not only does your answer have to be right, it's, it's how you're, you're telling your answer too. like, if you're mousy and, and unsure of yourself, then, then they may say, no, you're not the right fucking guy. Get out of here. And they've done that before. Now to get to that point, 99.9% of the guys that can make it to that point are the right guys. And so that, that generally doesn't happen, but, but it does. I mean, there are guys that, that fail that, that chief's board and just can't pass it and end up not becoming seals, you know, after almost two years of going through all of that, you know, the, the, the chief's locker, the goat locker basically says, yeah, you're not, you're not one of us. We don't, uh, we don't, we don't feel good about you. Like I said, it's not common, but so, you know, at that point, then, then you pass the test and like within usually a week of, of that time frame, then they would give you your, your trident pin, the, the seal seal pin that we wear and they you know, pound it into your chest and, and all of that. And it's kind of a, a cool throwback ceremony. Again, I, I don't think they do any of that shit anymore, but at that point, and then you have to go into your first platoon. Uh, and then when you're in the first platoon, now you're, you know, one of a few new guys in a group of seasoned dudes that have been around for a while. And, and they're all looking at you, you know, like you're a fucking nobody, uh, cause you are, you know, to them that, you know, you, you, you have just been given the opportunity to prove yourself to them now. Um, and then my, the first like real world mission that we went on was when the USS Cole got bombed. Was that in 2000, wasn't it in Yemen? Yeah. And so, you know, that was, that was the first kind of real world response that I was part of. So yeah, I mean, October of, of 2000. So from February of, of 97 to October of 2000, that was all, all training and selection and practicing until, until I actually got to do anything for real. So it's a long, it's a long road. And like I said, now it's, it's shorter than that. It's still long, but it's not, uh, you know, quite, quite that long. Can you remember when you arrived and saw the damage to the USS Cole? So Al Qaeda had bombed it. They killed nineteen sailors. So the USS Cole was a, a was a, a was it a battleship? No, I, I want to say it was a guided missile cruiser. Uh, battleships right. are, are actually no longer uh, in in the fleet. They've all right. been retired. Maybe it was a destroyer. You know, I think it was a destroyer. I I, I can't even remember. Yeah. But, I guess people um, are getting the image in their head. They'll get the idea. Yeah, I mean it's it's a combative naval naval yeah. ship, uh, you know, and to see yeah to see a a massive hole blown in the side of it and it it was you know limping it was listing really really bad uh, where it was you know half sunk really uh, and hats off to the damage control guys and and uh, and the crew for responding the way that they did to keep that boat from sinking and that was really the big threat was that the Al Qaeda cells in the area were were still threatening just over open. Uh, the, the Marban Marine Band radio, uh, like they were, they were threatening the, the coal on the bridge, saying, you know, hey, this this ship isn't leaving the harbor. We're gonna we're gonna sink it. And so the the Marines that we were with guarded it by day, and uh, and then from sundown to sunup, we we came in and and we were in two boats, kind of circling it at a certain you know several hundred yard perimeter. Uh, and then there was a, a contingent on the actual boat itself with, you know, there was a couple of snipers or a couple of automatic weapons guys with, with M60s. Uh, and then there was a guy with, uh, with, with some 84 millimeter rockets as well. Uh, if, if they tried to, to come on board and, and, uh, and if, you know, the, the guys in the boats, which that, that's the team I was on, I was out in the boats fucking circling around. 
uh, you know, if something got past us, then they would be able to, to further neutralize it or whatever. And there were, there were a few times where, where they would, they would kind of test the water and see what our response was. And, and I think they just realized that, uh, that they weren't going to be able to get, get past us. And so they, they never really tried anything. You know, there were no shots fired, uh, you know, in those, those times, there were a few times where, you know, came up and, and drew down on them and stuff, but again, that mentality, even after that was very different, you know, that 9-11 really changed the, the rules of engagement in terms of, of the willingness and likelihood for us being in a position like that to actually shoot somebody. It was still kind of kid gloves and, and not handled quite like, uh, like we would handle it now, you know, if in that same scenario now, I have no doubt that uh, the couple of incursions that we faced, uh, we probably would have shot them, you know, but again back then we were just a little more careful about it so if we do skip ahead and and, and go back go go forward past 911 so i'm guessing you know 911 really um set the adrenaline running for the navy seals um to put it mildly and then uh, you go from that and then uh, the the iraq war starts well before it even starts you were you were involved yet to take over a couple of oil terminals before the iraq war even started can you talk me through the plan behind that because the amount of planning that goes in, in into a mission like that you guys built an exact replica of the terminals to practice on you know you, you didn't leave any uh, stone unturned did you no we, we didn't you know we knew going into it that that was you know kicking the war off essentially and that that was going to be the first thing on top of that like you said you know it, it was the largest special operations mission uh in in the United States special operations history uh, and, and continues to still be in terms of the numbers of, of operators doing it at the same time. Uh, it, it remains to still be the, the largest one and, and probably will be forever, I, I think. Uh, you know, the entire SEAL Team 3, so, you know, a little over 200 SEALs at the same time doing the same mission. You know, yeah, the, the planning that, that had to take place was, was significant because you've got the manifold and metering station on land you got the oil terminals, which are like 25 miles off the coast. And then there's pipeline, you know, and these are 84 inch pipes that are filled with oil, um, you know. And so the, the worry and the reason for, for the, the mission to begin with was twofold was one is that, you know, that's how they were smuggling oil, even with the embargoes and, and uh, what have you. They were, they were still moving oil out of, out of those terminals. But then the kind of after uh, action or the follow on to that is, you know, if they blow the, the, the manifold station up, uh, the, the actual oil terminals up or the pipelines along that way, it, 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 that pipeline is blown, you're going to have, you know, Exxon Valdez is going to look like, like a picnic by comparison. You know, you've got, again, 25 miles of, of pipeline filled with oil, uh, you know, that, that's spilled into the Gulf, and then it's just going to make us look like uh, even bigger assholes. So, yeah, you really are going to be Team America then, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, they already think we're the evil empire, and that, that's just going to compound that. So mm. we had to take it down basically all at the same time, uh, you know, or within seconds of each other. Because if if the manifold station, you know, let the terminal guys know that, that they were being assaulted, then you know they could blow it there or, or at either end or whatever. So you know, we had to do it all all at the same time. And when you're moving that that kind of numbers numbers around and, and on boats on one side and on vehicles and, and helicopters on the other side, it, it does take a hell of a lot of planning and, and rehearsal. And so we spent about six weeks, uh, you know, rehearsing for that just day in, day out. And so by the time it came, 
you know, all of us were kind of running on autopilot at that point. I mean, we, you know, we knew what we were doing to the point where you didn't even really have to think about it. We had practiced it so much. So it went off flawlessly uh, without a hitch. Uh, you know, we captured on our end, we captured 26 guys, uh, prevented them from blowing anything. They had the explosives, um, you know, in, in further interrogations after, uh, after we took it down, they, uh, they had voiced that, they had no no recourse, no no ability to get off of the platform once they were blowing it, basically, and they, they didn't want to suicide themselves. So, fair enough. Um, so we had that that to our advantage to begin with. So yeah, how, how were they when you? Because <laughs> imagine if if some Navy SEALs still storm my house, uh, I'd be, yeah, I'd be I'd shit myself. Yeah, I mean, even though they were they were fighters, you know, I mean, they they weren't just oil workers like you know Saddam had had put. Uh, Republican Guard guys, and there were Navy divers, and and uh, you know, uh, I, I think there was even some of his uh, closely guarded Fedayeen guys uh, on board too, if I remember correct. But at any rate, you know, they, they were all armed. You know, they were all fighters, but uh, they they wanted nothing to do with it. I mean, they they put up basically no resistance uh, or, or very very little, and uh, we just swept through and overtook them basically. I mean, there were some of them that were crying and shitting and pissing themselves and uh, you know they, they definitely didn't didn't want to fight your 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 role in that in that situation was running around with a shotgun blowing doors open wasn't it yeah so myself and uh, and my buddy shane um he and i were the the lead mechanical breachers so anytime you come up to a door that that won't just open uh they they give the signal for one of us to come up and, and open it basically so whether it's a sledgehammer a uh, hooligan tool like like what firefighters use uh, we even had uh, acetylene torches uh, yeah I went through like I don't know 50 55 shotgun shells and, and we, we breached a, you know dozens and dozens of doors and, and some of them were empty some of them had had guys in them uh, some of them were armed some of them not uh, you know it was a mixed bag of, of what we found in, in there but it was several several hours straight of kicking doors in and and clearing rooms and, and, uh, that kind of stuff. So it was, uh, it was, it was neat because it was really the first legitimate real world operation that I had been on where, where we were doing kind of the shit that I thought I was going to be doing when I signed up, you know, kicking doors in flooding targets, you know, do, doing a, a direct assault, uh, or a direct action mission and, and actually doing, you know, you know, what the fuck I signed up for, you know, and this was five years after I started training, you know, but, that's just, you know, that's how, how it works sometimes. Uh, we finally finished up, uh, had, had all the guys captured and secured uh, at, at one end. Uh, and then that's when a bunch of the Marine fast, uh, fast team guys came on board and, and some interrogators and some other, other logistics folks and whatever to, to keep the, the facility running. And, you know, they kind of took it over. Basically, the next day, the war kicks off. We loaded all of our shit up, went up to the northern Air Force Base, Ali Asalim, in the, in the northern part of Kuwait. And then that's when we loaded all of our, our vehicles up and, uh, and then drove up into Nazaria and, and, and camped out there and did some operations there for a few weeks. Your SEAL team was kind of like the, they would go off ahead of the, the main advance, wouldn't they? Kind of doing recon and scouting things out, testing the waters. Yeah, I mean, it, it was unconventional even for us, really. I mean, it was not something that, that we would typically do, I think. But having said that, I mean, the SEAL teams are kind of, that's kind of our thing is doing things that haven't been done or, or that are very unconventional to begin with. But it's just not something we had really practiced or trained for. It was right at the start of the war. And so 
at that time, you still had like the traditional, like what you hear about from World War II, even of, of like front lines. You know, like you could look at a map and say, okay, you know, we're here and they're here, and we're, you know, almost like the, the board game risk, you know, it was like that kind of overview of, of what's going on. And so it was neat to be a part of that and to see like, here's where the front lines are and we're moving ahead and, and going up, you know, in front of or behind enemy lines, if you want to call it that. Uh, but we were really kind of hanging it out there. I mean, looking back on it, it was, it was really not that fucking bright of a, of a thing for us to be doing the way that we were outfitted at least. Now, granted, the IED threat was very, very low at that point. You know, so that wasn't a huge concern, but we were driving around in Humvees without any, I mean, they're unarmored Humvees with no fucking doors on them in, in some cases, um, you know, and, and uh, we're just rolling around in, in basic, basic bitch body armor and, and normal shit. Uh, you know, we didn't have a lot with us. So if we had kicked over a, a big hornet's nest, we, uh, we would have had our hands full for sure. It, it, I think that was part of it is that, you know, it was so unexpected that like even the people that we encountered were kind of like, who the fuck are these guys? You know, cause it wasn't <laughs> like this huge force that they saw coming from nine miles away. It was just like four fucking Humvees driving around of, of dude, you know, it's just like, people were kind of looking around like, what the fuck is this? You know? So uh, we caught a lot of fucking people off guard with that. And, and we got into it a little bit here and there, uh, you know, quick little, uh, pot shot ticks, you know, here, here and there, nothing major. Um. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. How far back was the, if you needed support, if you guys did get into trouble, how, how far away was your backup? Uh, I mean, there, there were, there were some instances where they were 18, 20 miles back, probably. Uh, okay. Maybe even more. Fuck. I don't even remember. I mean, there, there were times where we were, we were quite a ways ahead where uh, if we needed support, it would have had to have been air support. Uh, and there, and there were actually times, there was one time in particular, once we went further north up into Tikrit, which I've talked about a number of times, the ambush, where we did call in air support and, and we ended up not using them, but they were on station, you know, fucking immediately. Can you tell me about that situation? I know you've spoken about it before. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty wild, uh, wild deal in that we had the entire 1st Marine Division. This is when they were under the command of General Mattis. Uh, but, you know, so you've got 25,000 Marines, right? A huge number of dudes and then you've got one seal platoon which is 16 of us and they were like i remember the night before just before we got ambushed you know we're, we're up in this circled up with with the leadership from from the first marine division and uh and we're all kind of like you know mapping shit out on the on the uh hoods of our humvees boots off fucking 
you know, my, my helmet with nods was in the front seat of the fucking Humvee and I'm, you know, 15 feet away with my shoes off, like a total dipshit, you know, totally caught with my pants down almost literally. And, uh, but anyway, you know, so the way that we were, we were planning on it was like, okay, you know, this battalion is going to do the West side. This battalion is going to hit the North, going to, you know, button hook around and hit the North and come down. This battalion is going to come up from the South and then SEAL team three echo platoon. You guys are going to come in from the East. It's like, there's fucking 16 of us. <laughs> there's 25,000 of you guys. You want us to take 25% of, of the city of Decrete? <laughs> like, are you fucking serious? They, they weren't. Uh, we ended up going ahead of, we were kind of spearheading one of the, the battalions as well. Um, you know, so, so we took the lead basically and they came in behind us, but, uh, but it was just like, holy fuck, you know? So at that point, as we're planning to do this is when uh, all of a sudden shit hit the fan and, and uh, we, you know, what it ended up happening was a couple of the guys from, I think it was the 25th Marine Expeditionary Unit that we were with. A couple of them had just walked off into the into this open field slash tree line area to go to the bathroom to take a shit. And uh, when they walked out there, they stumbled on a handful of, of dudes that were trench coats, mass AKs, like kneeling down, dirt diving, like literally like planning a fucking, you know, an assault on us. And it's easy to, to hindsight, you know, and, and give them shit for how they handled it. But, you know, they, they come up on these guys and they're like, hey like they yelled at them. It's like, well, they should have just not said anything and fucking shot all of them. But, you know, again, I, you know, it was, it was early on. There was a lot of shit going on. They, they didn't know what, what was going on. But anyway, so, you know, as soon as they yell, Hey, these guys stand up and just fucking zipper them. So they, they run, run back towards us all shot the fuck up. And, and at that point, like the gig was up. So they just kicked it off right there and started shooting at all of us. And, uh, the entire, column of, of LAVs and LARs just start opening up on this field. And, and, you know, if you can imagine like we're here, they're, they're here, you know, shooting and we're kind of at, at an angle on the backside of where these guys are shooting at us. So, you know, we're, we're getting shot at by insurgents and, and Marines basically. And they had a, a technical, a, a truck with, with a recoilless fucking anti-aircraft gun and, and the bed of the truck was filled with these rounds. And, uh, the Marines shot a, 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 I think it was an 84 millimeter rocket, maybe a tow missile. I don't remember what they, they shot a rocket at this fucking truck and blew it up. And, uh, all of these rounds are sympathetically detonating like intermittently. And at the time, like, you know, we didn't know what the fuck we just thought like, Holy shit, dude, we're about to get, overrun by this mob of fucking insurgents because shit's blowing up everywhere and fire's coming from every direction of course i'm trying to put my fucking boots on and grab my helmet out of of the hood or you know out of the front seat of the truck and and uh, so we get in like this lazy lazy l-shaped ambush in the prone position facing where all the the fire's coming from now we're all on comms we've all got our night vision on and and we kind of start to unfuck the scenario and see what's going on and as we're doing that the dudes that were out in the, in the field had all been neutralized uh, to the best of my knowledge. And then there was one guy still sitting not very far from us. He was crouched down trench coat, ski mask, AK, and he was just kind of, you know, do, doing one of these. He couldn't see us, you know, we're on nods. And, and so there's, you know, six fucking, uh, or actually there's like 15 fucking PEC-2 laser dots on his fucking chest. And he has no idea. And he's just kind of sitting there or whatever. And we radioed over to the Marines. We all had our weapons suppressed too. We we're like, Hey, 
because they're right on the back side of this guy, right? I mean, they're 30 feet behind him, but right fucking behind him, you know, right in the line of our fire. And so we had to be pretty careful about it. We said, hey, you know, this is us shooting. Don't shoot back. We're suppressed. There's a guy between us and you just fucking, you know, we're, we're going to shoot him and, and don't respond, basically. And so we dropped this fucking guy. And, and uh, what was interesting is, I mean, he, he had a, a ton of rounds in his, in his torso. And, and uh, we had ended up, you know, once we, we found him afterwards, total luck. I mean, this was not, uh, our, our, we weren't that good at fucking shots where uh, both of his hands had bullet holes right in the middle of, of the meat of his hand and shot the gun out of his fucking hands. And a bunch of rounds went into his torso, but he drops the gun and he, he took off running and, and made it probably close to a hundred meters before he finally fell down and, and fucking died uh, after being shot. Basically take care of everything. We sweep through that field and, and check to see what the fuck happened. And, you know, after a couple hours of kind of debriefing with the Marines and figuring out what the fuck happened, then we finally, uh, you know, we're like, okay, you know, Charlie might continue the mission and, and uh, you know, finish our planning and then, crawl underneath our Humvees, try to get a couple hours of sleep. And then at, at dawn the next morning, we wake up and go, go take over the, the entire town of Tecrete, where we went on the east side, right up on the river and, uh, and took his palace down, which was pretty neat. Saddam's uh, palace. Yeah. And that was his hometown. You know, he, he's from Tecrete. So this was his, his, uh, his palace in his hometown. We assaulted it, took it down. It took a couple hours too. And, and it was, you know, everything that you see in terms of how opulent and extravagant it was, um, you know, it's just so over the top. It was like some shit out of the fucking cartoon Aladdin, you know, it was just like this crazy fucking palace. And uh, so what was neat is we took it down and then we took it over and we actually stayed, stayed in his palace for a I was going to ask that. Yeah. Did you make the most of it? Like, did you, so you, you stayed in the palace for a few weeks, did you? Yeah, yeah, we stayed there for a couple of weeks. And while we were there, you know, we, we pushed out and did some operations in the town of Tecrete while we were there, you know, but then that, that was towards the end of our deployment. So then you came back to Saddam's Palace and uh, stayed in some nice satin sheets and fresh running water and had someone wait on you. The life of a Navy SEAL. Yeah, I mean, actually, his palace, uh, the, the construction of it was, was immaculate, but there was very, very little in it. There, you know, there weren't beds to sleep in. That, you know, there was, wasn't food and refrigerators and shit. Like, they had gotten most of that stuff out of there. And so, uh, and at that point, also, like, most of the infrastructure in the town, like power and water, was uh, was not, not working very well everywhere, basically. So, we were still eating MREs and sleeping uh, on ground pads and shit, but... But just being in the palace was was neat. Being able to uh, uh, to be in indoors, even uh, you know, in, in something that was nice instead of just a mud hut or a shithole, uh, yeah. you know, that we'd been used to, uh, was was a pretty neat experience. Wasn't it in Tikrit where you first witnessed what a dog can do, a military dog can do? Yeah. So it was uh, in, in that area. We you know we were with all these Marines and. It, it wasn't even a dog that I actually witnessed. It was a, it was a group of Marines that was in that area that had one that I had heard about it. And, and for me, where it clicked was what they were doing was the same shit that we were doing. We just didn't have a dog. And so it, it was at that point that it was like that light switch of like, why the fuck aren't we using dogs, you know? And, uh, and from that point on, I just couldn't get enough of it, you know, and, that, and that's what started my journey into, into working dogs. Now I had, been involved with hog dogs before that and, and duck duck hunting dogs growing up and stuff. So, I mean, I, I, 
had a fair bit of experience with dogs uh, already, but not in this capacity. And, and it was that time there that uh, that really kind of peaked and, and sparked that interest for me to want to do it. But, so did you guys start using dogs after that? Or what was the next sort of steps? No, I mean, I, I certainly wasn't in a position to be able to implement dogs into, into naval special warfare. However, uh, e- even with you know, Afghanistan post 9-11 and, and really with, with everything like that, we as a community realized that we needed to be using dogs and, and weren't. And dogs are, are a capability that unlike, say, a new weapon system or a new insertion platform or, you know, anything else that, that we do that you can bring something new in and, and learn it fairly quickly, dogs are, are completely different, you know, because they're a living, breathing animal you know, there's psychology, they learn different, um, you know, there, there's a host of elements there that, that are at play that, that, again, just like we were talking about earlier, take years to get good at, you know, uh, being a good dog handler and a good dog trainer is not something that you can just go through a you know, two month course. And now all of a sudden you're an expert It took several years before we really started using dogs. So the, the main type of dog that you get for, for Navy SEALs, the Belgian, Malinois, right? So it looks kind of like a German Shepherd for or Alsatian, depending on which uh, version you use. What are you looking for when you look for a Navy SEAL dog? A lot of the same traits, frankly, that you look for in a in a Navy SEAL human. You know, you're looking for an uncommon will to succeed. You know, a dog that doesn't give up. That even when you threaten their life and you put them in a position where they know it's dangerous. You know, you, you can, if you're doing bite work with a dog, you can get in their head and, and make them feel threatened and make them feel like they're losing and make them feel uh, uncomfortable and, and stressed out and whatever. And so uh, you, you want to find a dog that's environmentally super stable, uh, supreme level of confidence, really good uh, prey drive and hunt drive for the detection side, as well as, you know, any type of counter ambush uh, type scenario. And then ultimately a dog with natural forward aggression that, that when pushed is going to push back and, and not give up and, and try to fucking kill you. And as far as like being able to test um, like their f- flight or fight, uh, you know, to, you know, when they're putting them in that combination in that situation where they feel, you know, danger, how, how do you, how do you test that bit? Like, how do you, how do you know whether that dog is going to be good in battle? Sure. So in, in essence, you want to pick a fight with them. And if I'm in a bite suit, like I can, I can project a certain level of confidence and violence and anger directed at the dog. That's, that's unfair because he can't really hurt me if I'm in the suit. Right. So he's got his mouth on me. He's trying to hurt me. And and then I'm unfazed by that. So he's, you know, it's kind of like you punch somebody as hard as you can and they just shrug and start laughing at you. You know, and you're like, Oh fuck. You know I mean? That's basically what you're doing is that he's, given you everything he has and, and you're getting in his head and making him realize not only does this not hurt me, but I'm the predator, you're the prey and I'm going to fucking kill you. And, and so you, you have to have that in your mind. Like it can't be fake and manufactured and just going through the motions and, and doing the physical uh, aspect of that. You have to go into that place um, to be a, a really good dog decoy. You, you really have to be able to control that, type of emotion and, and to be able to create a, a violence and, and anger uh, that, that, again, that's very authentic and, and make that dog understand that it's directed at him. You know, once I get them to the point where I, I've got them rattled and I'm in their head, 
at that point, then I basically go neutral. I don't take any pressure off, but I don't put any on. And then I want to see that dog come forward. If that dog comes forward, then I know that, that at the end of the day that that dog has it uh, and, and can be trained to take more and more abuse or punishment or mental pressure that we're putting them through to, uh, to be there for me, uh, you know, when I need it. So in Afghanistan, especially IEDs. So it basically for people that don't understand what they are, they're basically booby traps. A dog would be able to sniff out essentially an IED booby trap. The difference that the dogs made for the armed forces in Afghanistan, the numbers were massive weren't they, Mike? Like the, the amount of um, IEDs, once they started, the dogs started coming in and started finding the IEDs and stopping people from getting blown up, you can actually quantify it, can't you? Unquestionably, it was thousands of people that, that you, could, you could easily say their lives were saved. But what's hard to, to understand above and beyond that or quantify it uh, is, is how many pass that. Because if a dog finds you know 200 pounds of ammonium nitrate and keeps your unit from getting blown up, you know, you can say, okay, well, there's 16 guys lives you just saved. It could be more than that. Maybe that 200 pounds, you know, gets put into a busy marketplace, you know, and blows 500 fucking people up. The dog finds a cache of, of weapons or uh, explosives or RPGs or, you know, a, uncovers a, a, a hidden space and a crawl space in a, in a target or something. And, and for, bomb makers are hiding in there and the, and the dog is the one that uncovered that who knows how many bombs those guys would have orchestrated and, and how many ieds they, they would have made that would have killed people people will probably ask the question why can't you just use a, a metal detector or a bomb detector they, they don't work as well back in uh in the 0607 time frame where in iraq ieds were the single deadliest aspect of of our enemy's uh, capability of, of killing american soldiers uh, the department of defense actually did this long uh, several billion dollar study testing everything i mean sniffer machines metal detectors scanners i mean you, you name it and dogs were one of the tools that they tested and at the end of that study what they found was that dogs overwhelmingly were the most uh, accurate and effective in defeating IEDs. Uh, they're, they're way cheaper than all the machines. They don't break down or, or get impacted by elements and environmental factors the way the machines do. And they're also portable uh, is that, you know, most of these things are, are big, heavy, clunky things that you've got to run things through to, to scan them or whatever. That's not even taking into account the apprehension factor that the dogs can now go, you know, way ahead of you and find things and, and communicate that back to you that they've found something and then come back to you or, you know, go off and, and chase somebody down and bite them, you know, so multi-purpose wise, um, bang for your buck. They're just, uh, they're, they're the best thing out there. But even if you eliminate all of that and just go head to head on what's the most effective, you know, what's, what's the most accurate means of detecting explosives dogs beat all all equipment is that right yeah there was a training situation where you hide from the dog and they have to chase you down um, which must be pretty scary in itself there's one situation where you you hid in a room with the showers on it's like with uh, uh, really with anything that you know is going to suck the, the the anxiety 
surrounding that is worse than the actual act. You know, if you know you're going to get kicked in the nuts, getting kicked in the nuts sucks. But knowing that you're going to get kicked and, and waiting for that is worse than actually getting kicked. And so it's it's that way. Every time you're in a suit and you're hiding from a dog, you can't hear him, you can't see him, but you know that motherfucker is, is coming. And he he's coming to, to absolutely nuke your ass. It is. It's it's uh you know it's a lot of adrenaline, a, a lot of adrenaline, and there there is a terrifying element to that. No no two ways about it. In terms of the showers being on and kind of why we do things like that, it's it's basically it's the same same philosophy as as buds as seal selection training. Is that I want to make things as difficult as possible for the dog, so that when we're operational, if he runs into something that's that's tough. I know that he's been through that and, and can handle it. So, um, you know, that's, that's why we do those types of things, but yeah, it's, uh, it's nerve wracking to say the least. I mean, uh, waiting for a dog to, to come, uh, capture you and bite the shit out of you, especially when it's dark. I mean, there's times where it may be pitch black. You can't see him even, you know, you, you don't know he's there until he's actually on you. Like you can't see anything you can hear sniffing and rustling around or whatever. And then bam, all of a sudden you've got all this massive pressure on, on the back of your elbow or, or wherever he bites you. It, uh, yeah. It can, it can be nerve wracking. God. Yeah. It sounds terrifying. I was, when I was reading that book, part of the book, I was, <laughs> I was like, poor bastard. But as far as teaching a dog, how to find an IED, like how do you teach them to actually understand the difference between chemicals and understand what they're actually looking for? So there, there's a couple of things with that. Uh, the first thing is that the, the nice thing about a dog's nose is how discriminatory it is. So if you walk into a pizza uh, place, uh, you smell pizza. When a dog goes into a pizza place, he smells every single ingredient in that pizza, every ingredient in the sauce. He's, I mean, he, and, and he can segregate each of those and, and differentiate between them. So that's not being taught. Uh, you know, the dog is, is genetically just capable of doing that. Now, where the human comes into play is that the whole reason that the dog is going out looking for, in this case, explosive order, what I have rewarded him for finding, which is the key, is to play with that ball uh, or that reward object. And so that's why it's so important to have a dog with really high prey drive is that he's willing to go look for that, to be able to play with the ball. And so basically what you're doing is you're taking these explosive components and you're, you're pairing it with when the dog finds that he gets to play with the ball. Now, where it's important to be careful is making sure that, that the dog is not being rewarded for finding other things that that's going to basically give you a false positive. I know he's looking for explosives. I'm putting the explosives out there, but the dog only knows that he's being rewarded for what you're you're actually giving him the ball for finding. So if there are other elements to that that are common, like I know that even though I'm wearing gloves and the explosives are being uh, stored in a in a plastic container, I don't want him looking for plastic. But that dog, remember, like he he has no concept other than what his his nose is uncovering. So if it's always paired with glove odor or whatever it's being stored in odor, or if you're using your bare hands and you had bacon that morning you know, whatever it is, is that, uh, you have to proof that dog off of and make sure that whatever other odors are attached to that target odor are being set out and he's being proofed off of proofed, meaning if he finds and tries to alert on just a pair of, of gloves that I've been using to handle the, the explosives, if he alerts on those that I don't reward him for that, and I extinguish or proof, uh, proof him off of that. It's really important, but that's, that's the basic gist of it. 
And can, can you tell me about your Warrior Dog Foundation? Yeah. So the Warrior Dog Foundation was uh, started in August of 2010, and it started with a couple of Tier 1 anti-terrorism dogs that just needed a place to go. It was basically if, if we didn't take them, they were going to put them down. And so, uh, you know, for me, I just said, you know, hey, I'll, I'll take them. And that kind of opened the floodgates. A lot of other units sent their dogs. And now police departments, you know, Customs, Border Patrol, you know, pretty much any, any operation uh, or outfit that uses dogs in a working capacity uh, has, has sent dogs to us uh, over the year. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, a pretty neat project, but one that uh, it's a lot of work and, and you know, dogs that we're with are, are hard chargers for sure. But. I bet. Have you got five bits of advice for someone at home that is the, or domesticated dogs, people that bring up dogs in their own home? Like what, what sort of advice would you give them that maybe they haven't got or they, they can't Google? But the first thing is, is understand that dogs don't think the way that we think. Um, and that's probably the, the biggest component is that, you know, if you think about how much information has been exchanged between you and I in the last hour and change, it's massive. Has body language played a role in what I've, you know, the stories that I've told? Not really. Your internal monologue works that same way. You know, you, you think in a language, dream in a language, you know, you go about your day thinking in, in English, you know, and in a verbal language. Try to imagine a scenario where, where you don't have that ability, right? And so now everything is, is a simple association. Everything is A plus B equals C. That's how a dog's mind works. So you and I, and what most humans where they make mistakes is, is they're thinking or they're trying to, to imagine the way that a dog is thinking and they're, and they're thinking that he's using an internal monologue the same way we would and, and they're not. So their mind works more like a calculator than it does our mind, you know? And, and so that, that simple principle right there is what's gonna separate how you interact with the dog and how you train them much, much different than, than you would if it's a human being. Uh, and so with that, you've gotta be super consistent and you've got to pair whatever the, the behavior is that you want to happen. You've got you've to mark it. You've got to give that dog an idea that that behavior equals this reward. And that's where markers come in. Clickers are saying yes or, or whatever. Is that, you know, let's say the dog makes eye contact with you. You mark it, you know, and you don't say anything. You don't, you don't do anything. You're just sitting there looking at the dog. And every time he looks at you, you mark it. And you're feeding him through training that way. Well, in a couple of days, that dog is going to stare at you nonstop because you, you've made that positive association with eye contact equals you get to eat. And so it's that with everything, with sitting, with downing, with staying, with healing, you know, all of that. Now, the more complex and dynamic the behavior is, the more you have to shape it. Uh, shape it meaning use building blocks where, you know, if the dog is going from standing in front of me to swinging his ass around, uh, you know, getting ready to get into the healing position. Uh, I can't wait for that entire thing to happen before I mark and reward it. You have to shape it through very, very small baby step building blocks. But that, that's the gist of how you're going to teach them everything. You know, put them in a crate when you're not training them uh, early on during that training phase so that you can neutralize all the white noise. Understand that, you know, if you let them just run around and, and do whatever is that you're not part of that equation. You want to be part of that, that A plus B equals C. And so if, if you're allowing a dog to make all of these decisions on his own, then, then he's not going to value you in that equation, in that part of the relationship. And so neutralizing the white noise, not giving them the ability and the freedom to just do whatever they want, 
Now I get him out of the crate and now he's only being fed, marked and fed when he does what I want him to do. You know, and very, very quickly, a dog will understand what's going on and what he needs to do to, to get paid or fed. Similarly, there has to be a consequence for the things that you don't want a dog. Now, every dog is going to, some of them require a pretty stiff consequence. Some of them, it can be very, very light. And, and that's your job as the owner to know what it's going to take to get that dog to that level uh, or, or to, to provide that consequence that's going to matter. And, and so that's it, is that you're, you're structured your, your day, you're extinguishing the things that you don't want, uh, you're marking and reinforcing and pairing positive associations with the things that you do want. And then you're, you're viewing every interaction and every environment that you're putting that dog in or with, with the understanding is that their mind works with an A plus B equals C formula all the time. The, the negative reinforcement, because you talk in your book about that not being such a good thing, is that? So here, here's a big uh, kind of misunderstanding is that within the four quadrants uh, of operant conditioning, which is where positive and negative reinforcement, positive and negative punishment come from, most people hear positive and negative and think good and bad, uh, and it's not. It's adding and subtracting. So when people, the, the most commonly misused term is negative reinforcement, is people think that that's punishing a dog. It's not. Negative reinforcement means remove or subtract reinforcement. Reinforcement is something that the dog wants, right? Whether it's a food, a toy, affection, again, it's going to vary from dog to dog. So negative reinforcement is me withholding a reward from him, not punishing him. Punishing him in the, in the traditional sense of using a prong collar, a, a, an electric collar, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend doing this, but, you know, spanking a dog, that's positive punishment. You know, most people hear positive punishment, they're like, well, how can punishment be positive? Positive, again, is, is adding, not, not subtracting. So positive punishment means you add it. Negative punishment means you subtract it. Positive reinforcement means you add reinforcement. Negative reinforcement means you, you withhold or, or remove it. So you know, that that's uh, an important distinction to make. Yeah. And you can find out so much more about that in your, in your book, Trident as well. It's got some great, great stories in there. It's got some amazing stories about dogs that, what, what they've done on the front lines as well, what they've done for Navy SEALs, Marines, crazy, amazing creatures that they are. Um, Mike Ritland, thank you very much for coming on the show, but most importantly, um, thank you so much uh, for your service. It's a true, truly a pleasure on both accounts. Uh, can't thank you enough for having me on. And, and to all the listeners across the pond, I uh, sure appreciate uh, all you guys and, and your support and service over the years. You guys have been, been instrumental allies for, for the United States. And I can tell you, while, while you may not see or hear that sentiment much in the American public, the entirety of the United States Armed Forces, uh, you know, is... is in, indebted to you guys uh you know forever for for everything you've done for us we, we really appreciate it well i'm not going to take any credit for that but someone listening to this uh might enjoy those words thank you very much mike and if, uh, people you've actually got a new book coming out as well don't you i do this one doesn't have anything to do with dogs it's all uh, uh political basically uh you guys will probably get a kick out of the title it's called unfuck america <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And uh, yeah, it uh, should be out, uh, I think, when, when this is airing. But uh, you'll be able to get it on, on Amazon. It's probably the easiest easiest place to get it or on, on uh, MikeRitlandCo.com. Amazing. And thanks again for listening and we'll see you again next week.